Ooh, that's a heavy dose of mainstream media propaganda for your morning there, wherever you guys are. Oh, I just had to just light that up to get everybody all fired up for today's show. Uh, we have Brian Burlett from the new Atlas, and Angelo is in the house as well. And we are coming at you live here. So good morning, good afternoon, uh, or good evening, wherever you are. Uh, Patrick Lancaster, 50-50. Cross your fingers that he makes it on the show here, but he's also sent us uh, a video update as well from the area and we're looking forward to him uh, coming on the show uh, but as you can understand that he is always in a very very complex situation uh, Angelo um, good evening to you um, well uh, I certainly uh, would like to give you the floor here after playing that uh, clip there thoughts I, th I saw you chuckling a little bit backstage was painful. That's so painful. You know, I have to go through this. It's just, a, it's so extreme. I, I just don't know how how they do. I mean, there's such an extreme between the reality we're living in China. And when I see those people, uh, I mean, I'm just trying to imagine the average Joe watching Fox News, all those Sky, Sky News and so on, and going through that all the time. And, you know, I think it's, a, you know, if you repeat the lie, you know, how, as they say, hundred times you, you end up believing it, no matter how absurd is the lie. It's all this thing about China, 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 China bad. And, and so you need to combine these, those news, anti-Chinese news, anti-Russian news, to what uh, average Joe goes through Hollywood, you know, by watching hundreds of movies where you have those stereotypes about Chinese. Chinese, you know, have you ever seen a cool guy in Chinese, in Hollywood movies? Never. Never, he's not attractive. He's just a guy in a dark, living in a dark room, you know, working hard. He's just, he's not sexy for at all, you know. When it comes to Russians, Russians, if he's a, if he's a male, he's a mafia guy, very rough, you know, with tattoos and so on. And if it's a woman, that's a prostitute. And that's what people in the West have in their subconscious mind. You know, and they act like the reptilian mind. You know, it's a, it's good, bad, good, bad. And what can you do? Uh, this is why the West has won the mind of their people. Because they do, just don't realize it. You know, they cannot even explain. Why are you anti-Russian? They cannot even explain. It's just, you know, Putin bad. You know, that's the trigger. And, and, and sadly, sadly, what we, you know, I think what our task here is just to try to adjust that just you know go you know chinese chinese they say uh, look for i mean find the truth through facts you know because all societies is no more factual it's just emotional you know you you push the triggers of emotion and what does it do it, you know it, it's it's it just looks short term you know you have such a big gap between those two cultures the west and the East is planning for long term for the next generation and the West for the next election. I mean, Angelo, I, I want to just continue with what you were saying, you know, the, the power of the mainstream media and also the power of Hollywood. I mean, you look at Hollywood events. I saw Oliver Stone, an interesting interview with Oliver Stone, and I challenge our viewers today to uh, try to find Ukraine on fire in your local uh, Netflix catalog uh, when you go home tonight and watch Netflix, it's not going to be there. You're going to probably then move over to YouTube and think, hmm, maybe somebody put it up. 
it's not going to be there either. And you're going to try to rent it in various uh, zones throughout the world if you have Amazon Prime or if you have even uh, Apple Music or whatever it is, Apple Video nowadays. I'm not sure what they are, but you won't find it. It's been pretty much delisted, decatalogued uh, out of uh, history. And this uh, actual documentary really set the tone to what we are uh, experiencing today. Now, Brian, I mean, uh, I'm not sure if you have watched that program. I think you probably have. Uh, your thoughts on, you know, the the power of this uh, Hollywood. I, I you know, I, I, we don't have to talk too much about Hollywood, but I got to tell you guys, uh, Hollywood is really uh, the exterior arm to Hollywood is really these media channels. Well, according to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, this war is no longer a Hollywood production. <laughs> this is this is a real war now that the offensive is falling flat, not going as planned. He admitted that in a recent BBC article. I was just reading it right before I came on uh, with you. And by the way, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is what the West does. They they are working against reality. And so th- they need to reinforce these lies the truth often it's often said that it can stand on its own it can defend itself and and i think that's why people like us who do try to get the truth out have limited resources but become such a thorn in the side of the establishment think about the the media empire that the west presides over how how much resources they have how many people they have working for them uh, around the clock, and yet they're still not able to completely convince people. People like us are still able to to work our way in and compete against them and make a convincing argument. So this is exactly what Angelo said. They have to repeat the lie a hundred times for it to stick. People see the truth once and wake up. They're never going back to sleep again. This is the, the dilemma that the West faces. And this is why just... Uh, an aspect of human nature in general, uh, you know, we, we know that lying is bad. This is the reason why, because it's unsustainable and only leads to, to ruination, self-ruination. Um, you know, I had a conversation with a couple, a friend of ours, um, not going to name their names, of course, so they're going to kick my AWS. Um we got on to the subject. They're basically located in uh, Vilnius, Lithuania. And I said, uh, are you getting ready for one of the largest trading events coming up in uh, July? And they said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, well, you know, this big event that's happening in July. And they said, I'm still not quite sure what you're talking about. And they said, well, I said, well, how does the city look right now? And they said, well, you know, there's talk of them putting about 3,000 Ukraine flags throughout the city of Vilnius. Beautiful picturesque Vilnius, by the way. In my heart, it's a lovely city. But then you have to understand why there are going to be 3,000 Ukraine flags, because this is going to be one hell of an arms sales uh, extravaganza going on for 72 hours while NATO rolls into town. And Raytheon and all the boys bring in their new gear. You can see the ferries warming up from Sweden coming into Estonia and the sales guys that are coming in that they know they have to meet that quota of 2% GDP 
to become NATO compliant and then the Finns will be in town. They'll be loading up their war chest, ready to rock. And there'll be lots of extra stuff dumped into the market and driven on trains down to Ukraine. And I got to tell you, I bet you, if anyone, on those two days that NATO is in town for their special event, sit and be a fly on the wall in any lobby, any four- or five-star lobby in any one of those hotels you will definitely, most guarantee, run into somebody that is, you know, part of a, a military company selling arms. Gentlemen, am I running off course? Is this a, is this conspiracy, or you guys, you, you believe what I'm saying? I I think it's weird because uh, they're going to put three thousand flags up, but uh, I think they already said that they're not going to be even giving Ukraine a time frame to join NATO. So I. You know, maybe it is just going to be uh, announcing more weapon shipments. But, they, you know, this is something we've all been talking about for months now, if not long, like a year or more now. The, the West is running out of weapons. They, they cannot produce enough weapons to throw into this conflict. Uh, so maybe contracts for future weapons. And that, yeah. I mean, that's all money that they're going to have in their, their coffers without even having to do anything. I, I don't know. Angela, what do you, what do you think about this? I think it's a big show. Uh, the reality, uh, I think if you, if you really want to see what is happening in the world, you should look at the BRICS. Those are the real news. The NATO event, it's a known event. Actually, nothing will happen. They are saying that they are going to support Ukraine to enter NATO, but well, you know, the, the promise is, is time frame, time frame. When? When? The thing is that it's going, the war will be finished when they might eventually, for whatever is left of, uh, of Ukraine, they might accept Ukraine into NATO. They might, but you know what? Uh, the time frame, that's the question. They, uh, and, and again, you know, we are all realistic. Na- uh, Ukraine cannot enter NATO as long as, as Ukraine is fighting Russia because de facto, it would mean a, a war of NATO between uh, between NATO and, and and Russia, and and potentially a, a World War Three. So I think it's just uh, I think it's just they're just buying time and just uh, giving uh, the, the illusion that uh, they would accept uh, Ukraine to NATO. And the same with the EU. You know, don't even think for a second that the EU will open the doors uh, to to Ukraine. Uh, just because it doesn't fulfill the con- the preconditions, you know, it's the worst. It's the worst democracy. It's not a democracy. It's extremely corrupt. Uh, just think about uh, Turkey. Turkey waited uh, over thirty years to enter into EU. You know, so we can make as many promises as we we want to Ukraine, but if you don't give a set time, it's just empty. It is just empty. It's just giving the illusion because, well, guess what? If uh, if they were going to say no or just a set a date, just too far in the future, uh, well, you know, you you could imagine Ukrainians feeling very betrayed. Uh, so here, what they they're doing is just buying time. Just it's just cosmetic. But I would see, I would say that uh, if we really want to look at the news, this is we need to look outside. What is happening? You know, there are some interesting things happening. You know, Africans coming coming in. You have, uh, I would say, BRICS. BRICS, that's the big news, the big revolution. And guess what? The collective West medias are not covering this. This is the new, I would call it the new Yalta. You know, the Yalta was these meetings where you had, uh, you know, war was not 
yet over, but they were already deciding the, the world after the war. And BRICS is the same. BRICS are already the world of tomorrow. And you see every month you have new countries joining in. The latest country, who was that? Uh, that country that was part of India, uh, the split of India, not Pakistan, Bangladesh. Bangladesh Bangladesh. just joined, is actually interested in joining in. The world is changing. And I would say the... Uh, what I'm expecting is that what would make a huge change is the day that we'll have a Western country joining BRICS. And I think that is the shift. That's the new paradigm, the tipping point. Once we get to that, then anything can happen. And any all these, these uh, castle of cars we could collapse. You know, in the collapse, I'm expecting, you know, it's just a matter, matter of time. EU to collapse and NATO to collapse. Just a matter of time. Just give you an example. You know, just imagine if you have Poland just going to Ukraine. Imagine the tensions it would create within NATO. You would have a, a Ukraine, uh, you would have Hungary going against this. You would have Turkey to be extremely upset. You would you would have France to be also very upset. You know, all these projects, globalist project, could fall apart, and we are that close. And guess what? Time is in the, on the side of Russia. Time is on, on the side of China. And time is on the side of the global south. Well, Angelo, you know, I, when I was in this conversation on the weekend with a, different people than, from uh, Vilnius, there was another couple that I was talking about. And they said, yeah, but, you know, if they arm them more, the Ukraine is going to have a chance to win. And I kept saying, what does win mean? Like, what does that mean? Well, if they win. They go in and they fight. They win. I said, who? Like the army that is getting hammered on a daily basis? And they said, well, and then they start to get confused. And Well, you know, like if they win the war. I said, so let me get this straight. You're going to bring in, uh, you know, air support. Okay, they bring in air support. You bring in tanks. Okay. You know, you bring in anti-aircraft. All right, drones. Yeah, spend lots of money. Okay, yeah, get another 5,200 thousand soldiers in there fighting again. All right. And then you bring more missiles in. Okay. And what? You're going to push Russia back. Hmm, okay. You'll push Russia back. Now, where does that get you? What are you winning? You're winning, I guess, a little territory if you continue to do that. If these people really honestly think that you're going to push a nuclear power like Russia into a corner. Well, there was one nation that did feel that threat in the 1940s. That was America when uh, the Japanese had them where they wanted them. And uh, lo and behold, well, the two two atomic bombs uh, leveled Nagasaki and Hiroshima. The end game here is not a good outcome. Uh, winning is not an option, actually. It really is not an option here. You, you, you push Russia into a corner and you have 40 to 50 nations. That's what, you know, Vladimir Putin continues to say. We don't want to use these. We never want to use these. But if you, uh, completely, uh, you know, obliterate, uh, you know, our army by, uh, using just about every country in the world, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, they had to flex their muscle. I mean, Brian, you talk about this on a daily basis. You really understand this. Uh, I, I don't want to call it a game, but the 
what does winning mean? And I mean, can you help me, uh, you know, see some clarity here? Well, essentially, it's a it's a war of attrition. It's a war of attrition, and the West is still treating it as a war of territorial conquest. They think that if Ukraine can just push Russian forces back, if they can cut the land bridge, if they could take Crimea back, then somehow, just just like you say, somehow they'll quote unquote win. But the the problem is, no matter how successful, because we're talking about this offensive, this could, this could only come in the the context of a large scale offensive like what Ukraine is attempting to execute right now. The problem is, it took them a year to build up this force. This force is not infinite; it is very finite. They're grinding through it right now as we talk, and when it is gone, they're going to have to build an entire army back up again. And the reason why they're burning through it so quickly is because of all of the reasons we've talked about before. They are out of the equipment that they had in their military for years and years, that their soldiers had years of experience operating. All of that is gone. All of their experience manpower is gone. It is all gone. And they're trying to take raw recruits. They're trying to throw them into equipment in in the matter of weeks or months and put them in the middle of an intense uh, an intense offensive operation when in reality it would take years to integrate this military equipment properly and even if they had proper training this offensive that they're trying to execute right now would still be extremely difficult because they're they don't have air power you know you're you're talking about sending them warplanes sending them missiles they don't they don't have any of this right now and so they're trying to launch an offensive under the worst possible conditions, no air cover, minimum air defense. The West can't, cannot provide them additional air defense. And they're just, they're, they're losing, uh, huge numbers of troops and equipment right now. So, uh, you know, what, what is winning in this case? It's, it's an abstract. Just like you say, Alex, it's a, it's an absolute abstract. They cannot win because this is a war of attrition. It'll take the West years and years to build up their military industrial output to be prepared for a conflict like this. Ukraine doesn't have years and years. So I, I don't think that there is any winning for Ukraine in this. And I don't think it'll even come to nuclear weapons unless NATO itself goes into Ukraine. And even then, um, I, I still don't think Russia, I mean, nuclear weapons is really a last resort for, for Russia. Yeah, and you know, it's very uncomfortable to have a conversation with some people that just, you know, you try to say this, listen guys, winning, you know, as you say, Brian, winning is really, it's, it's not an option here because it doesn't technically exist in this situation. Um, if we're going to look at that, I mean, we could also look at the situation here in China. I mean, the drums continue to beat here, uh, you know, in Taiwan. Uh, we've got uh, more visits uh, potentially coming up uh, in the next few months. Um, I mean, this is just going to add more uh, fuel to the fire. I mean, Angela, maybe you can uh, uh, weigh in on this here with the Chinese situation. I mean, this, if, if you really think that, uh, you know, and I'm now talking to the administration in the United States, if you really think that these continued sanctions are going to derail this country and uh, a country like the United States is going to become unscathed. Well, I mean, that's, that is wishful thinking. I mean, uh, I mean, what have they done now? They've sanctioned, I think it's 12,000 companies right now. What's happened? 
I think it's completely absurd. Uh, uh, in the case, well, you, you, we saw what happened uh, when this, they tried to sanction Russia. Russia has positive uh, GDP. Well, you, we see clearly that the collective West is actually in recession. So uh, we saw Germany. Germany is, is on, on, you know, studying its disindustrialization just because gas and oil are being, being too expensive. And uh, for when, when it comes to heavy industry like, uh, like uh, uh, chemical industry, where you have 30% of the cost where that comes from energy, it's making those industries not competitive. So what do they do? They have to move to the US or to China. So you see, when it comes to China, it's, it's going to be even worse. The whole supply chain of the collective West has, uh, at some point, you know, I don't know what is the percentage, but probably between 10 to 50% that comes from China. So what do you do? Even the industrial complex, they admitted, Raytheon admitted that a lot of what they produce has, you know, small parts has to come from China. So they need to re-industrialize. Uh, and, and that would take so much time and so much effort. And keep in, keep in mind that actually, if you want to reindustrialize, and if you are, you know, if you are going to work under the cost structure of, of the West, it's going to cost you much, much more. So just imagine in terms of inflation, what it would do to the collective West. So now you have China on the other side that has, you know, if they, if they lose them, uh, EU and US market, they have plenty of other markets. And you see, it's very interesting. The collective West has been talking about decoupling, or, you know, especially uh, von der Leyen, she called it de-risking. But, you know, China has been starting on this pro process of de-risking, uh, and, and, uh, and I would call it more like diversification. You know, you had your bets. You know, you have risk, and you know that actually the the collective west is becoming you know very unstable and they're threatening you what do you do well china started to invest into the belt and road initiative you know you invest into your partners that are around you you know you you actually it's a win-win you build infrastructure to your partners and they are going to supply you with natural resources and then china you see the trades they're doing with south america trades with with africa Trade with Southeast Asia is going up, while at the same time Europe and the U.S. it's, it's stable. Uh, so you see, I think we we need to look at really. I think uh, we need to look at trade because trades are really important. You know, when they threaten, the words are worth nothing. Threats are worth nothing. If you threaten China and at the same time your investment that you do in China increase. Well, you know, it's your words are empty. The reality right now is that China is, is getting stronger and the West needs more China than China needs the West. What China, you know what is sensitive with China? It's natural resources, oil, especially when it comes to energy. That's what is the most sensitive with China. Guess what? China with BRICS. When you look at the, the structure of BRICS, who's in BRICS? You have Russia. You have uh, you have Iran, the partners. You know you have Iran that wants to get in. Uh, you ever saw uh, Saudi Arabia that is getting closer to to China as well? They have huge partnership, you know, and they, they oh, start... yeah. so you see China is actually self sufficient just because it has secured those strategic partners. What what the West did, 
the US, what did they do with Saudi Arabia? A partner, you know, a partner that was a partner for, for 50 years, you know, uh, it made the US very wealthy. They had access to cheap oil and that was what secured the petrodollar and the dollar dominance over the world. What did they do? Biden, he calls Saudi Arabia, a, I'm going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state. It's so stupid in terms of diplomacy. That's extremely stupid. You know, and, and again, you know, yesterday, what did they do? Blinken goes to China, supposedly to mend the, you know, to mend the relationship between China and the US. Next day, you have, they declare that China is, a, is the worst dictatorship. How stupid is that? I mean, you know, I, I, I don't, I haven't done diplomacy university, but you know, that, that's extremely stupid. You know, diplomacy, it's about the interest of your country. First, you know, you, you need to be flexible and deal with countries that might not share the same ideology and values as you. Otherwise, you know what? You are acting like an arrogant prick. Stupid Westerner, they want the rest of the world to be at your image. And, and that's crazy. You know, it makes me think about this messianic view, you know. God made the man uh, at his, his image, you know. And I think the U.S. wants to act like God because he wants to make the rest of the world to its image. That's so arrogant. And we, they need to, to, to just step back and just, and just become adults. You know, all those brainwashing about exceptionalism. You know, exceptionalism be meaning we are the best and we are going to teach the world what, you know, this, this exceptional, you know, way of being and all values. And the world is watching and they're like, do we want that? Do we want our kids to be, to be brainwashed? You know, to at five years old, you go to a kid and you say, you, oh, maybe you boy, your girl, you know, and, and all this sexuality and all this deconstruction, uh, religion now overnight, religion is bad. Uh, loving your country is bad because you're fascist. You know, you know. Uh, I think I, I like to see that what what is happening in the U.S. right now in the collective West is very similar to what China experienced during the Cultural Revolution. It was it was about deconstruction? You know, because you know they wanted to get away from this feudal. I, uh, old ideas that China had, you know, and, and build a new human being. And the U.S. is doing that, but it's extremely toxic. It's, it's so unhealthy. It's, it, I mean, morality, there's no more morality here. You know, we are talking about, you know, the essence of, of what human beings are, you know. You, what, what, what happened if you, if overnight you don't have family anymore? You don't know if you're a man or a woman. You don't love your country. You know, so you are from nowhere. You know, you you will own nothing. You'll be happy. You will, we are, you are just nothing. And, and, and that's scary. That's a very scary. And the rest of the world is watching that. And they're like, no way. I don't mind you do this BS at you at home. You know, I respect, you know, that's you, you stuff. Whatever. I respect your privacy, but leave it for yourself. Don't come to my home and tell me what I should be doing in my home. In Chinese, they say, live and let live. And that's tolerance. The real tolerance is that I take care of my home. And, and this is where I agree with Trump. I'm not a fan of Trump, but Trump was focusing on U.S. first. And I agree mm -hmm. with that. 
you have so much bad things happening in your own country, so many troubles, you know. Why do you want to go 8,000 miles away and trying to change a system, a country that has 4,000 years of history, while yourself, you have 250 years of history? What do you want to teach China? China is nothing to learn from you. In China, you know what? China is humble because China, they, they have this concept, this, this idea of, you know, know yourself and know your enemy. At least, you know, know yourself and your enemy. Well, in the U.S., people don't even know themselves. Why? Because, because they don't learn about history. Most people in the collective West, you know where they learn history? They learn through Netflix and Hollywood. And this is why now you talk with average Joe in the West, And they will tell you, you know who beat Nazis? The U.S. That's absurd. That's absurd. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks beat the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I understand your frustration. I'm still waiting for um, Alensky to, uh, you know, get his pronouns correct. I'm waiting for him to actually declare that he's identifying himself as the president of the Ukraine. Because I'm not sure what he is. Uh, you talked about BRICS. You know, also this Americans, uh, the American, the Build Back Better Act. Uh, we all remember that uh, was really uh, ramped up the, you know, the uh, competition to the Belt Road Initiative in China here. That, I mean, you think about it, you know, BBB. I mean, definitely uh, the Better Business Bureau should look into uh, that act because that has gone nowhere. And we talk about the BRI. Um, you know, there will be, you will start to see a lot of uh, promotion on the BRI. You can see it ramping up here in China as they really, you know, accelerate this into, I'm going to call it second gear now. I think we're well over 140 countries. Just to tell you how this logistical chain works, it's quite extraordinary. I think you guys on the panel is very familiar with what I'm talking about, but for the viewers out there, this is how China really navigated itself through the pandemic. Yes, uh, it was difficult times for, you know, the, the average uh, seller that would, uh, you know, maybe have a mom and pa shop. But for most logistical change, they kept, uh, you know, the world uh, going. And uh, we're in a city, I'm in the city of Chongqing here, and we call it the zero kilometer, the starting uh, uh, road for the Belt Road, the BRI. And I'll give you guys an example We have a railway line that goes all the way from Chongqing to Germany, right there. And then it connects with another cargo train and then heads into the uh, United Kingdom. And the last time I was told, because the trains keep getting faster, a, they switch conductors 28 times uh, through this rail link. And this rail link, why it was so important... And just to give the average person an understanding, uh, a little bit of uh, the, the politics and how things are done here in China, you have the CPPCC and the NPC parties. And I just want you guys to think about the House in the United States, the Senate, okay? So in China, you will call it the CPPCC. That's correct, I, I believe. And then the NPC. Well, They'll come up with an idea and they'll say, yes, we think this is a great idea. We're going to pass it. We're going to pass it over to the MPC. And they then vote, but 20 to 30% of them are non-elected people. They are 
with professionals, doctors, people that have, uh, you know, bring some uh, knowledge. To, for example, if you were going to roll out uh, the electric uh, EV cars here, well, you're, of course, you could try uh, as a as a private enterprise, but a country of this size. Uh, it's better to bring this mandate before the government to explain what your goals are. And this country's managed to accelerate the expansion. This is why EV cars here, and this is hard to really tell people that are watching this, how many EV cars are here. I'm in the city of Chongqing, 34 million. And now all I am seeing is EV cars. Not one in five, not two in five. But we're getting to almost all because they are decorated with a green plate. Now, when they roll out EV cars in China, they're saying, wait a minute. Okay, let's go to a universal charging system. Well, we're going to get an environmental study. We're going to do this, and we're going to pass it through the NPC, and then we're going to get the, uh, the smart guys to say, is it good or bad? Does the government spend money? Okay, it's good. Boom, let's go. That gets rolled out. Then all these car companies come up behind it, and then they get rolled out. Instead of saying all of these, you know, failures back, and, and I'm not saying that there's not failures in the in the EV car business. But what I'm saying is there is a organized system uh, with the government here that is connecting cars, connecting roads, connecting infrastructure. I mean, just in the Chongqing area here, we have 14,000 bridges and more are being built. Uh, it's to make people's lives easier. Uh, they get from, uh, you know, I think we had a rail line that just came from Chongqing all the way up to Zhenzhou. Uh, used to take 14 hours from here on the green train to go to Beijing. Now with the high-speed rail, it's seven. And you got to remember how they got the tracks done here. Over 97% of the tracks are through mountains. 97%. And then you come out of a mountain, you're on a bridge, and then you're back in the mountain. I mean, this is some serious... They, they are they are laying down some serious, serious infrastructure here. This is like... If you want a real-life sim city uh, or sim country... <laughs> These guys are, are following it. Um, gentlemen, maybe you want to weigh in on that a bit? Well, I, I think for a lot of Westerners, the idea of the state investing in the people and in infrastructure seems so alien. And when they hear about China doing it, they're skeptical because they cannot see their own governments doing it around them. If you live in the United States and you want to take a train from one side of the country to the other, you're going on Amtrak and it's a, the, I don't know, maybe it's changed since the last time I, I was on it, but it was a disaster. It's late. It's slow. It stops in the middle of the desert. Yet they turn everything off and they shut, they shut it down and they tell you to go wait out in the desert until, you know, five or six freight trains pass and then you get back on and you, you're 12 hours late to your destination. So if you told someone to wait for you at the train station, they're not there waiting for you anymore. That's for sure. Uh, and so people are very skeptical when they hear these stories about China. But I, I, I highly recommend people get on YouTube and do something like drive Shanghai 4K or walk Shanghai 4K or any city, uh, Chongqing, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, Beijing. And just it's just going to be people who take high quality cameras and they just drive through the streets or they just walk. 
randomly, no commentary, no editing. And you can see for yourself, and uh, Alex was just talking about electric vehicles. Um, I, I don't really know about the cars, but now that you say there's a special license plate, I'll, I'll look into that. But you can see all the, the motorcycles are no longer motorcycles. They're electric cycles, I guess you could call them. And for people that don't understand, in Asia, motorcycles are, are widely used. And uh, here in Bangkok, for example, you you can tell that you're you're breathing in the exhaust and it is making you sick from the mm-hmm. mo- mainly from the motorcycles, also from all of the diesel vehicles. Um, it is a huge problem, and if they had more electric, it would solve that problem. It seems like they're solving that problem in China, and I think people remember the West smearing China over their smog problem, and they solved it. And instead of talking about how China solved it, they just moved on to something else to smear China with because the the smog story doesn't work so well, especially now that uh, New York City looks like <laughs> Beijing looks like like uh, five or ten years ago. So it, it is. It's um, a lot is happening in China, and people ought to try to look into it. The Western media is not going to tell you. You shouldn't just blindly believe Chinese media. There are ways of independently looking into it without traveling to China. Although if you can, you should, because it'll blow your mind. I think Angelo, Angelo and you, uh, Alex, can both speak to this much more because you're actually both in China. I've, I've just well, visited you, China. You nailed it, Brian, when you talked about, you know, the scooters, the air quality in Bangkok. I used to live in Bangkok. I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember yeah. coming home and just my eyes would start itching and it would just throughout the whole night. And then you'd wake up and you say, what, what caused that? And it's the particles in the air. I came to China here. I came to Chongqing. Now, if you go back and you look at Chongqing, uh, CNN report from, I think, about 15, 20 years ago, it's just gray. It's just gray, 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 gray. And it's like, oh, the, you know, and, and it's not to say that that wasn't part of the history. But this interesting thing is, is you get these reports where they go back, but then they don't tell, they don't show you, you know, you know, from the poverty to prosperity for, from, you know, pollution to, you know, pristine. There's no doubt about it. I see the blue sky when I walk out uh, my door in the morning here. And to talk about the, the electric scooters, you once again have nailed it. I have two electric scooters in this town. Why? A, affordability. Okay, a brand new scooter that can get me to point A to point B, buy the groceries, drive around this little community, no problem. That costs me less than one U.S. dollars a month to charge. Okay, that's one bike. The other more powerful bike, downtown area, that ended up costing me $775 for the e-bike, which I can charge my mobile phone, which also has a mapping system included with it. And that cost me 12 RMB, which is about two US dollars for consumption of electricity a month. And those are everywhere. And you ask people, you say, well, you just, just to give somebody an example, the taxation system here is not designed to, you know, wipe you out. The medical system here is not designed to wipe you out. If you take the taxes off, and the medical off here, and then what people pay for rent, transportation. And I'm going to give you guys a very, very, very interesting example here. We were in a bar a couple of weeks back, and we were talking to a bartender. And I was with an Italian friend at the time. And my Italian friend says, uh, you know, hey, I'm curious, you know, what does a bartender 
in Chongqing make? And he's a young guy and he said, well, probably not as much as Italy. Well, I had my Italian friend there. I said, let's talk about this. Let's get down to it. So the Italian says, well, uh, if you're going to be a bartender, let's say Central Town, I don't know, maybe anywhere from 1,000 to 200 to 1,200 euros a month, base salary. And if tips are good, you know, three or 400 bucks, okay. And I said, now hold that thought. How much of that 1,200 is taxed? I'll be generous and say 25%, okay? I'll be generous. Then I said to the young fellow in, Thailand, in, in China, how much is yours taxed at? And he says, well, about 9%. I said, okay, 9 And he says, low enough that no one complains. Low enough that no one is dishonest. All the taxes get paid. I said, okay, let's go to round two then. How do you get to work? And he says, well, if I didn't have an e-bike, once again, Brian, <laughs> you know, with everybody buying these e-bikes, he said, I would take Metro. My Italian friend says, well, doesn't Metro top stop at 10? And he says, what? Why would Metro stop at 10 when everybody's out at night? He says, no, I can take the Metro home for less than 50 cents. Well, bartenders in Italy, main city center, don't think there's much Metro going at that hour, would have to drive, would have to pay for parking, would have to pay for insurance for their car, and so on, and so on, and so on. And you see, as you start to break down these figures, then the bartender says, well, I don't live too far from work. And we said, well, this is central Chongqing. And he says, well, my rent works out to be about 10 to 12% of my monthly salary. And he says, it's a new apartment. The view's not that great, but it's pretty safe. And you start breaking down these costs. And lo and behold, whether this audience believes it or not, the wages might be a little bit less here. But at the end of the day, their cars aren't getting broken into. They're not getting robbed. They're getting home safe. They're having a great time enjoying themselves. They're putting a little bit of money in their jeans to get ahead in the future. And they're learning that the Western world outside of their borders is not what you know, some of their friends were told when they go over there. Most Chinese people that I have met that have gone overseas, that have taken a job and worked, come back and says, boy, I'm really glad I didn't break my arm, you know, or, uh, you know, slipped and, you know, cracked my head on a sidewalk because I would just go bankrupt. And bankrupt is just a easy word to use. I asked a guy the other night, I said, what if you didn't have insurance? Or, well, we do have insurance, but copay only pays this. And, uh, yeah, I had somebody that twisted their ankle. Their medical bill was 15 grand. And then you got to know. And I said, what if you can't pay it? Oh, you just go bankrupt. What kind of society is that? How can people, like, that must play on people's uh, psyche, you know, being concerned. Like, I, I wouldn't go out for a weekly, uh, you know, uh, ball game with the buddies over beers if I knew that I might end up in emergency with a $50,000 bill. I mean, it really is that crazy. And when you do all the numbers and you add the numbers, the e-cars, I mean, there are cars that start at $3,000 or $4,000 here. This We're not seeing people that are being pressured by advertising, pressured by Hollywood. You must get this car upgraded because your neighbor has a new car. You need this car to be in this class of an individual. 
And this is what really is driving a lot of these things. This heavy, heavy, heavy propaganda that we see is not only, you know, trying to sell us, um, uh, you know, goods to buy, but they are trying to sell this war. And, uh, I mean, is there going to be an end to this uh, style of propaganda or are we, is it going to be ramped up again? I'm going to go to you on that, Brian. Oh, the, you can see the, the propaganda is just ramping up. And just like Angelo said, the U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken went to China. Um, actually, when you read about his trip and what he said and, and, and everything, it, it really seemed like a waste of time. And China's response to him was, okay, you've said all of these things, now actually do it. Because we, we know that you like to say one thing and then do another. This is what you have consistently done. This is why our relationship is uh, going so poorly right now. And as soon as he gets back, what does uh, U.S. President Joe Biden say? Oh, uh, Xi Jinping's a dictator. He's upset about this. He's still talking about this balloon that I, I think they admitted wasn't even a spy balloon. And they're still going on about that. And, I, and it's hard to tell whether he's just senile and he's just saying these things or if this is just the U.S. reaffirming that no, we're not we're not fixing anything with China. We're going to continue. Obviously, they're going to. I mean, I don't think China is laboring under any illusion that things will work out with the United States. I think they're trying to buy time because, as as I think you've both said, time is on China's side. They're trying to buy time. They're trying to talk to anyone in America that they can. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think they they are counting on or betting on the U.S. making any sort of peace. The U.S. still has troops uh, on the island province of Taiwan, for example. Uh, so I think I think China is very well aware of what's going on. I think the United States is going to continue uh, their war in, in their proxy war in Ukraine against Russia is a component of this wider agenda to encircle and contain. China. I just did a video on my channel about two terrorist attacks this month, June, this this year. One in Vietnam, one in Myanmar. Uh, in Vietnam, was an attack on multiple police stations. In Myanmar, I mean, there's just terrorism every single day. But this this particular, in, in both instances, it was the Western media writing articles about these terrorist attacks and whitewashing them. And what does Vietnam and Myanmar have to do with China? Both of these countries are along China's periphery. Both countries do business, a lot of business with China. A lot of people think Vietnam is anti-China. You were just talking about the rail link all the way to Europe. China has connected Vietnamese businesses to Europe using this, this link. They also built a metro system uh, in Vietnam. So the U.S. is working on disrupting, undermining, destabilizing these countries. If they cannot get regime change, put a client regime into power that will irrationally transform their country into a battering ram against China, they'll just destabilize and destroy it so that it cannot uh, create any sort of value as a viable partner for China. And this is to not just impede China's rise, but to impede all of Asia's rise. The U.S. wants to reassert itself over this region. And this is the way that they're going to do it. We're talking about build back better world. Uh, and before that was the blue dot, which no one even remembers because it amounted to literally nothing. They did nothing with this blue dot and they're not doing anything with build back better. It's all a smokescreen behind which they pursue this campaign of terrorism, coercion and uh, uh, subversion. 
in all of these countries working with China. They, they cannot build a better railway than China can, but they can fund opposition groups to attack, physically destroy the infrastructure, kill engineers, uh, uh, you know, file legal cases against the government to try to slow down construction. This is how the U.S. is actually countering the Belt and Road Initiative, not by building better than China, but by destroying, which is what the U.S. has been doing since the end of World War II. Yeah, you know, I like the built back bankrupt is what I called it now. I mean, it's going nowhere fast. And, you know, with the blink of an eye, he was out of here uh, in China. But, you know, I, I want to just dig a little bit deeper into this railway thing here just to tell this audience how insane uh, that uh, China has invested in this. I mean, we have more than I think it's almost 60,000 uh, high speed rail tracks laid in this country. Canada has one single rail line coast to coast. Now, as bizarre as it sounds, you would think, well, if you're going to build it one way, you'd build it twin, right? Because why would you bring a train from East Coast to the West Coast and bring it back on the same track? Now, try to envision this, guys. You might think I'm a bit crazy, but no, that's how it works. The cargo systems in Canada, East and West Coast, they travel on one single track. And what they have to do is employ all this staff to work these trains, to side rail them, park them. The other train comes by. They back the train back up and forward it through. Passenger trains in Canada? Yeah, nice one. If you got about five grand and you want to go floating through the mountain on that little tourist train, but that's about it. And people wonder, well, why is, there, why is train so important? I mean, imagine living in a, uh, a world where, let's say, your parents or your friends, I don't know, maybe they're four or 500 kilometers away. Well, what's your option? Six-hour car ride in a car or maybe a plane or how about an hour on a high speed or meet the friend halfway in between 30 minutes? I mean, this is changing everything. This infrastructure, as you say, Brian, the connecting it all the way down, you know, through Southeast Asia, the International Land-Sea Trade Corridor, the Chengdu-Chongqing Economic Circle, these are really changing lives. And these nations are waking up. They're going, why? Why on earth would we want to get in, in bed with these guys? Well, as China's building bridges, these guys are building bases. And then you hear the Americans upset. Oh, we think China has got a $2 billion deal with the Cubans. I was on RT the other night talking about that. And they're, oh, well, the, the, the Chinese are entering a $2 billion deal to spy on the Americans. Why would any... The Chinese don't need to build a, a $2 billion base to spy on the Ameri Americans. are on the 4G network. They're not even on 5G. That stuff's old. It's the old clunky stuff. I mean, Snowden could even, you know, snoop in on that. No problem. But, I mean, this stuff is so bizarre. I mean, what is America afraid about uh, China setting up in Cuba? Are they concerned about the Guantanamo Bay uh, area that is still open 22 years later? Do they are they concerned about some you know something going on there, guys? I mean, this stuff just boggles my mind. And how these countries have the audacity to sit back and just throw it at China, big bad China. China's preparing for war. Oh yeah, look it, they buzzed our planes and the, oh they were terrible. We you know we were just floating our aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Strait. Everything was fine. We were just there on you know kind of like seeing what it would look like. I mean, can you imagine aircraft carriers off the coast of California from the Chinese Navy? That's front page news. Not for a day, it's for, for a month. I mean, 
where is the West going with this, guys? What? I mean, what's? I, I just, I go to sleep at night saying this, this can't be real. Some of the stuff that they're doing just can't. How on earth did they convince these countries like Finland and Sweden to join NATO? How? I just, Alex, I'm gonna jump in. Uh, please. You know, I think I think uh, what the U.S. and the collective West often says that China is uh, is the danger. Uh, I will actually confirm one thing. Yes. China is the the danger for the, the collective West. But let me explain why. The thing is that China is actually showing a, a different model, a model that is working, that is actually delivering results for the prosperity of its, of its own people. What is happening is highlighting now the problems we have in the collective West, that we have democracies, I mean, so-called self-proclaimed democracies that are not and also that the, we realize in the West that those democracies are, co- are controlled by globalist elites, big corporation. It is actually it's a system of transfer of wealth between from the poor to the rich. And while in, in China they're actually showing that there's a there's a way to sh- to towards uh, shared prosperity. You know, it's a it's what the Chinese like to call socialism with the uh, Chinese characteristic. So here now you have, you know, it was uh, the propaganda we used to have in the in the collective West uh, in the 70s and 80s was, was working very well because they were comparing uh, wealthy nations, you know, because in the 70s, we actually, the system was working pretty well and people actually had decent lives, you know, they, they were not struggling like they are now. You could have a couple where you had the woman that was staying at home, taking care of kids. They could buy a home, a house, and so on. Now you have couples that need to work uh, three jobs, and they can. They sometimes sometimes they're homeless, and sometimes they have to ask themselves, "Can we have kids?" You know, this is basic human rights. So now uh, that was working back then, but now it's not working anymore. Because you don't have uh, the scapegoat like they had the USSR. They could they could point the finger. Oh, you see the USSR? They're starving. They have to queue. You know, it's it's not the good society that we have here. Now, what is embarrassing for the collective West is that they're talking about build back better, and there's nothing. It's all empty words. And what if you have people going to Russia and going to China, and they realize, oh my God, there are no homeless in China. They is so modern, you know, there's infrastructure, people are having a good life and people are happy. Oh, wow. I'm talking to people in China and 95% are happy about their government. Is there something wrong? Because you cannot give the fault to people. You you have average Joe in the West says, oh, well, of course, 95% of Chinese are are brainwashed. You know, they're brainwashed. You know, they, they cannot think for themselves. No, well, you know, just... If you talk more to them, with them, they, you realize that the, the political awareness, it's, it's very broad, you know. And, and, and keep in mind that there's 150 million of Chinese that travel abroad every year. And guess what? 150 million of Chinese, they go back to China. So you see, that's the difference when you have in the West, when you look at the politicians, First of all, the politicians we have in the West, they are actually working for whoever, not elected them, but whoever funded them. You know, they obey to whoever gives them money. In China, it's different. 
It's very different. You cannot uh, give empty promises. You know, it's a social contract between the CPC and the population. The CPC is in power now and is very representative of their people and it's extremely democratic, but it's in power now as long as it delivers. And guess what? It's been delivering constantly for the last 40 years. And this is so a very big difference that we have in the West. We have this, this corruptions that we call lobbying. We have also, you know, the pro, look at the profile of our politicians. You know, those, you know, we have politicians that are, that are lawyers, bankers, you know, actors. I mean, I mean, clowns, really clowns. In China, you, you know who's in the CPC? But they all have PhDs. Mm -hmm. All have, uh, you know, they they are like a STEM, you know, or science, technology, engineering, mathematics. You know, I mean, a guy like Putin. You know, I just learned that Putin has a PhD in economics. Look just at the at the politicians we have in in the West. I mean, you know, uh, do you imagine that in in China you have, uh, you know, in the Congress? I mean. I don't know. I, I'm not to look down at, at, at some professions, you know, but AOC, she's a bartender. You know, she's a bartender and, and she's just an Instagram girl that is actually, you know, it's, she's empty. She's just completely empty. But you know what? She would not stand one second in China. Uh, someone like Biden, he would barely make it to a village level. You know why? Because you have to deliver. There's an advancement in politics as long as you deliver and you are judged by your peers. And that's what we call meritocracy. Meritocracy, there's merit. It's not like in the West. This, this whole society, which is built on emotion. I'm going to tell you what you want to hear and I'm going to touch you hard. Oh, I'm going to touch you hard. How empty is that? China is going to be boring. Why? Because you are going to see your, your politicians or the politicians in China are engineers. They are going to be factual. They are going to, going to tell you, you know what? We have a five-year five plan. We are going to build this, this, and that. And this is, you know, this is what the target inflation is on. That's boring stuff for average Joe. But you know what they deliver? And Chinese love that. And you actually, you, you, yeah. you're totally right about delivering. And they do deliver. And if they don't deliver, somebody's talking and saying, hey, why didn't we deliver? I mean, it's absolutely crazy when you see how these this media, when they just, you know, oh, China's bad at this, China's bad at that. You know, there are also some content creators out there that really need to uh, wake up and start reporting uh, the truth about this country. Because when you start to get big, uh, you know, viewer bases and subscribers, that comes with a responsibility. And if you're lying or not telling the truth to these, uh, you know, your subscriber base, well, that can invoke a lot of uh, animosity and which then spews into hate. And this is what really disturbs me. You know, last year at this time, there was a bunch of content creators on YouTube that were making this these videos about, you know, China is about to collapse. You could put, pinpoint them. They were everywhere. China is one month. Yeah, in about 29 days. China's collapsed in about 28 days. I'm not naming names, but I'm going to be very clear with you guys. There was an orchestrated attempt for that, whether it's through maybe shorting in the financial markets, through derivatives. Don't get me wrong. 
I mean, all the planets uh, got to line up and all the, you know, YouTubers that have huge subscriber base all got to line up to make those types of videos. It just isn't a freak thing where they come out and they say, um, yeah, and it was amazing how much that propaganda machine was coming. Now, was that part of the $300 million anti-China West uh, piggy bank that uh, the administration passed? Possibly, could be. Don't know, don't have proof, but gee, it's pretty funny when you see it. And then I went back to a lot of these channels. Videos are gone. What happened? Why are they gone? Why are they disappeared? And it really pisses me off when I start to, you know, when you blatantly see uh, lies coming out of, of, about this country. It's crazy. I mean, I, I, I live here. I've been here two years now. I've been coming to China since 2001. And I'm, wow, what about this? Have you seen that? And it just keeps coming and coming and coming. Just when you think the latest wave of uh, the non-believers, another wave of them come in. And, you know, I always pin these comments. You'll see on my videos on my page, it's not usually a rosy pinned comment like, uh, you know, hey, what do you think's going to happen this year? It's usually some guy saying, you know, how much have you been paid? And I, I got to laugh at this because... Um, Cyrus Jansen, uh, in one of his latest videos, he was getting some people saying, you know, what did you get paid to walk the, the Bund in Shanghai with Alex? How much did they pay you? And he says, well, this video was sponsored by Starbucks and you can use this code when you go in. I mean, there's probably some stupid person out there that would probably go into Starbucks and use the code. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. And we are seeing some, you know, ridiculous things happen here. Let's, uh, let's head back now and, uh, talk about a little bit more coverage here, uh, in the Ukraine. I mean, Brian, uh, your reports are really starting to get some attention here. Um, we're seeing Sky News that's even backtracking. When you see Sky News starting to backtrack, Something's going on here, and maybe you could share with the audience what you, uh, what your, you know, analogy is of what's happening down there. And then I'm going to play a clip that Patrick Lancaster told me that he wanted played. I did get a message from him just a couple of minutes ago. He's still going to try to get on here, but, um, saying something about he's currently in the mountains, bro, internet almost non existent. Must switch off data and GPS back soon. So over to you, Brian. Let's hear about well, this uh, Ukraine. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if people have been following my work since February 2022, uh, you will notice that what I'm doing is actually going through uh, press releases from the Pentagon or uh, Western media, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, if you go back to the Ukrainian fall offensive last year, there was a Washington Post article about uh, the fighting around Kherson, and they talked about how lopsided it was, how Ukraine wasn't making any uh, making any gains, suffering huge losses. And they were being totally outfought by the Russians, and Russia decided to leave Kherson city, cross the river, shorten the line of contact, and pack it full of troops because they knew there was going to be another round of uh, pumping in weapons and training. They knew the offensive was coming and they wanted to be fully prepared and squash it. And when they mobilized 300,000 additional troops, even though the Western media often claimed that they were conscripts, if you read the fine print, even in the Western media, their reports, they admit that these were 
these are reservists. They have previous military training. They were getting remedial training for half a year at least. And they're the ones that are on the front line right now absorbing this, this offensive. When we were talking about the Leopard 2 tanks being sent to Ukraine, the first thing I thought was, well, I, I already saw Leopard 2 tanks being blown up in northern Syria. Turkish forces were using them. Turkish troops were very well trained, well supported, had air support, uh, had infantry support. They still had their tanks destroyed because there's nothing special about a Leopard 2. So if you take that information, which came from the Western media, you extrapolate it, uh, apply it to the upcoming offensive, you would have realized that, well, they're going up against Russian forces who have many times more anti-tank weapons, better training than the militants that Turkish forces were fighting against. They're going to lay waste to these Leopard 2 tanks. And there weren't even that many tanks sent in the first place. Uh, and the same goes for every other weapon system. Uh, I, I have been in the military. I understand how extensive training has to be just to learn the most basic things. And I can tell you that you're not taking a new recruit in Ukraine, training them for a few weeks and sending them off to, to go wage war against Russia and execute a successful offensive under these circumstances. It's impossible. And so nothing is a surprise about how the offensive is going right now. And yes, the Western media is uh, backpedaling. It was funny because I just saw... Uh, 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 former U.S. Army general and former head of the CIA, David Petraeus, on DW German state media. And he was talking about how brittle the Russian defenses were because they're manned by these uh, conscripts who are just going to run the first the first sight of uh, Ukrainian troops. And then uh, just a couple of days into the offensive, even the Wall Street Journal was talking about Ukrainians talking about a, a wall of steel. That was how they were describing Russian defenses. So it just goes to show you there is a major disconnect between what is happening uh, in reality and what the people at the very top of Western society are thinking and uh, using as a basis for decision-making. Uh, the Western media, though, has been reporting these things all along because I don't I don't cite Russian media. I don't cite Chinese media. I only cite Western media. So if they were talking about this, even if it's buried in their articles, that means there are people that understand this. And yet they decided to go along with this anyway. And you could only you could only speculate that they're doing it because they have no good options. They they still, for whatever reason, insist on reasserting themselves over a reemerging Russia and a rising China, which some people might be confused. Why are you talking about Ukraine and then also China? Because they're directly connected. It's all part of the same conflict. The U.S. wants to eliminate both Russia and China as peer or near peer competitors. That is the whole point of all of this. And uh, even the Western media is connecting Ukraine with the island province of Taiwan and U.S. designs to wage some kind of war, proxy war against China uh, in, in the Pacific, exactly as they are with Russia Ukraine. So, I mean, this is what's going on with the offensive right now. And it's not to say that they're not going to make any any gains. I think that they will make gains. Again, I've been talking since December about a New York Times article about Russian defenses, how they're layered. They're layered specifically so that Russian forces can absorb the offensive, give ground to the, to the oncoming Ukrainian troops if they are able to, to come in uh, fast enough in large enough numbers and coordinated enough, they are going to give ground instead of standing and fighting and losing huge 
numbers of casualties or ending up encircled, they will give ground to absorb and diminish Ukrainian forces. That is the whole plan. Uh, so things can still develop. We have to keep a close eye on it. But uh, everyone seems to admit that this is off to the wrong, uh, off on a wrong foot. And uh, I was listening to Alexander Mikuros of the Durham, and he was pointing out, and I, I almost forgot about this. There were all, all of these articles in the Western media before the offensive talking about how the first 24 to 48 hours will be decisive. You know, this will be the point where Russian troops shatter and and run. And this is when the Ukrainian forces just plow through to the Sea of Azov and uh, obviously hasn't worked out that way. And if you were paying attention, uh, you would have known that. So I don't know where these people were getting their information from. Wishful Brian, thinking. I, I also want to touch on this. I have spent hours trying to get the figure of casualties uh, from a troops uh, perspective here. I can't find anything. And I mean absolutely nothing. Like there are crazy numbers like mm, 1,500 Ukraine soldiers have died during the, you know, the last few years or 60,000. What's going on here? (laughs) Why is there no numbers? Uh, Like why aren't the media reporting uh, or getting in touch with the Patrick Lancasters? St. Patrick, you know, we had Patrick on our program uh, just a little over a month ago. Right, guys? We were chatting just a little over a month ago. This guy personally saw 1,500 dead bodies. Personally, he's one guy. So can you just imagine how many casualties? And we're not even talking the wounded here. So, I mean, why can't we get these figures? Uh, Angelo, have you ever ever actually... Alex, just to be pragmatic, uh, we, you don't need uh, you don't need to be a military expert just to know that uh, when it's a trench warfare, uh, artillery is what makes the difference. So there is a correlation of uh, you know deaths in each camp according to how much artillery you have. So officially, what uh, the ratio is a one to seven or one to ten in favor of Russia. So here we have trench warfare, and you have Russia that actually can fire ten times more than Ukraine. Additional to that, you have air superiority. So you see, right now, you you know, and, and, and especially now, now it's the most critical. Now uh, Russia is on the defense. So you need to have, a, Ukraine needs to have a three to one ratio in order to attack Russia. So I would say that this point, to my opinion, and I, th- I think I'm not, I think if Ukraine wants to stop this offensive, it would be a setback for Russia. Why is that so? Because Russia, wants, what Russia wants to do is to demilitarize, to do some grinding of uh, Ukrainian forces. So when Ukraine doesn't have the resources, enough resources to fight Russia on the attack, and it's a one-to-one ratio, plus additional to that, you have much more, you know, the much more power on the artillery on the Russian side, plus air superiority. Well, Russia can just wait, and you are going to have a 1 to 10, 1 to 15 ratio in terms of deaths. So I would say that a setback for Russia would be now Ukraine backtracking. And I think, I think that's what they're going to do. I don't know. They, and they, they are actually, they, they are going probably to look for distraction. I don't know which distraction. Could it be like the nuclear power, power, power plants? Or, you know, they are going to, to have other distractions. Maybe Belgorod's. 
they'll find something. They'll find something. And again, you know, you have all those nudes. How many times we had those game changers? You know, Leopard 2, you know, then uh, F-16. It's just going to be the same. And guess what? NATO has no more, nothing anymore to offer because NATO is demilitarized. They have nothing. So Russia is not even afraid of NATO joining the conflict. Well, the fact that NATO has joined the conflict, but what do they want to bring in with the troops that are demilitarized? You know, because it's depleted. They have nothing. And additional to that, they don't have, they cannot match the industrial, military industrial complex capacity that Russia has. I mean, that's, that's big. I mean, if you think about it, you know, we're seeing some numbers here in the chats. I mean, guys, do you think there's any, anybody's close on any of these? I mean, I've seen as much as a half a million uh, soldiers killed to at least, uh, you know, 10,000. I mean, what's, what's your take on it? Well, I, you know, I would say the, the Russian Ministry of Defense numbers are probably the most accurate. And, and there's there are times where even the Western media is talking about Ukrainian losses that are higher than what the Russian Ministry of Defense is saying. So mm-hmm. I think their numbers are, are more conservative. I would go with those numbers. Uh, Angelo hit the nail right on the head. This we're We're listening to the West admit that there is a huge advantage in artillery, long-range weapons, precision-guided weapons on the Russian side. They have military aviation. Ukraine does not. They're making 800 tanks. Before the special military operation began, they were making 800 tanks a year. They're making many more now. They can barely scrape together uh, 300 tanks for Ukraine in a year's time. There is no way that uh, the casualties are not mounting in Russia's favor. They they are obvious this is a war of attrition. They are winning this war of attrition. Un- unfortunately, there are huge numbers of Ukrainians perishing, huge amounts of Ukrainian equipment disappearing. And uh, I, think it was, I think it was David Petraeus who also was talking about how uh, Russia is out of equipment, but then in the same breath, he was talking about how Ukraine has all NATO equipment now. And why is that? That's because Russia wiped out everything Ukraine had at the beginning of this conflict in February 20, uh, 2022. So what is what they're admitting it, even if they, they tried to spin it, uh, even when they're trying to make it as if uh, projecting onto Russia the failures of Ukraine and their NATO backers, but they're even admitting it when, when they're saying it. So I think we... We have to be careful when we're talking about numbers in the middle of a conflict, like the, the current offensive. I, there were supposedly nine brigades that were stood up. A full strength Ukrainian brigade should be around 4,000 men. And I would say probably at least two, two have been decimated by now, probably more, but at, at least two. And uh, that just goes to show you the scale of what's happening in Ukraine. You know, I was watching, um, you know, a military expert talk about the strategy that Russia was doing here. And they said, the, you know, they've had plenty of time to prepare for this. Now, Brian, I need your insight on this because this will add a lot of clarity to the viewers here. When Russia was preparing for this offensive to happen from the Ukraine, now, typically they would build trenches, right? They would dig trenches. Would they yes. mine? Would they mine in front of these trenches uh, quite, you know, 100 meters, 500 meters, 200 meters? How, how would that work 
And wouldn't this, you know, offensive come at a heavy price tag if these young, inexperienced soldiers from Ukraine, no matter how fancy of uniforms they got and how beautiful new goggles and gloves the West has given them for their, uh, you know, road to uh, humiliation, I call it. It's really, really uh, a tragic situation for some of these young soldiers uh, to, you know, run into this. But how does a country like Russia now know that the West is getting prepared, know that the West is adding uh, pressure to uh, the Zelensky government for results. How is it that they prepare for this? Maybe you can walk us through and let us know how something like that has to happen. Well, again, all the way back in December of last year, the New York Times wrote this article about these layered defenses that Russia was building. They had satellite images, even at that time, of extensive networks of defenses layers and layers of them going kilometers and kilometers deep. So from about, uh, if you look at a map, Bakhmut and Papasnaya, about midway between the two cities, uh, all the way to Papasnaya are all layered defenses. And that was in December. Just then they were building more and more defenses since then. And then if you look in uh, Zaporozhia, for example, from, I think, Miletopol all the way to Crimea, they were layered defenses. And then they've built layers all the way up to where the fighting is taking place right now. Ukraine hasn't even made it to the first made defense lines. They're still in what I'm calling a security zone. Other people call the gray area. This is an area between the where Ukrainian forces are and Russian forces are. Obviously, they're not going to be face-to-face. There's going to be a, a big standoff distance between them because of the, the realities of modern warfare and modern weaponry. All of the fighting is taking place in this gray zone. Uh, so Ukraine has not even made it through this gray zone to the first line of defense. And then once they do, they have to breach several of these layers to get to whatever their objective is. Miletopol, uh, the coast, Mariupol, I don't know, whatever they're, they're if Crimea, they're, they have to do double. Almost, uh, I think it's like 100, 200 kilometers worth of defenses they have to get through. And yes, it's all mined. And even where it is not mined, Russia has the ability to launch mines into areas. They can wait for Ukrainian forces to move in, fight them, lay mines behind them with these multiple launch rocket systems that fire uh, mines behind them. And then they have to retreat through this newly laid minefield. So it's a huge problem for Ukraine. Uh, The West... If NATO was trying to fight this war on Ukraine's behalf, they would need to use the full might of their air power, and they would have to face the reality of losing warplanes to Russian air defense. Uh, But Ukraine doesn't even have this advantage at all. They don't even have this option. They're going in there with no air cover, minimum air defense, and they're trying to demine while in kill zones that have been prepared for over half a year. This, this is the reality of what NATO has pushed Ukraine into. And you're right. Uh, uh, there are Nazis that are fighting and, you know, no sympathy for them. But I would say the majority of the Ukrainians fighting and dying, these are people that probably don't even want to be there. And it's very unfortunate. And the reason is, just as Western leaders have said to the last Ukrainian, they've literally said to the last Ukrainian, that's what they're doing. They're trying to wear down Russia to the last Ukrainian, and then they'll see where they can go from there. Uh, I mean, that's that's extremely troubling. I mean, how do you win? You don't win, do you? 
I mean, really, when is this going to stop? I mean, Angelo, we talked about this uh, a few times before, uh, you know, having guys like Patrick Lancaster, and they're trying to tell the other side of the story on this. But this is, you know, the West is just completely ignoring this. I mean, your thoughts on how this might uh, maybe go towards maybe some peace talks in the future? If you think, are you, do you think that's in the cards? Uh, I, I think it's going to be. It, it's very hard to say. I, I think this, uh, as as much as I thought that this, this could end really quickly, especially when there was a, the prospect of a, an agreement. But actually, uh, you know, uh, Johnson, uh, Boris Johnson, did everything just to to stop this this agreement. As much as now, I feel that this could could drag a very very long time. I think there's one thing that is. Uh, that we, we learn about uh, with this new conflict uh, that we didn't know before. Uh, just just that uh, it's um, a difference between the West and, 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 and uh, Russia and China. Uh, Russia and China have a purpose-driven army, while in the West they are profit-driven. So you can look at the, the efficiency of, uh, of the army. That makes a huge difference. Uh, then what did we learn? We learned that economies is a very important factor, you know, self-sufficiency. And it showed clearly that, you know, in the West, they are, they are very weak points. And, you know, the West is a service-based economy, financialized economy, while you have Russia and China that has, uh, they are producing, you know, producing tangible things. Now there's another thing which is extremely important. Uh, what Russia is fighting right now is, uh, is the, uh, the single war that Russia has been preparing for. And it's a defense war. So do you think it's a, co- it's a coincidence that uh, Russia has 12,000 tanks? It's not a coincidence. No, it does cover a huge territory, but because it's been preparing for trench warfare, because that's, that's what they need to prepare when you are a country like Russia. What did NATO prepare for? NATO, what is the experience of NATO? NATO has been fighting wars, easy wars, you know, against, uh, you know, they bombed Yugoslavia, or they've been fighting against, you know, uh, uh, Afghanistan, you know, Iraq. Those were easy ones, but, they, you know, they were never, ever prepared, prepared to fight a power like Russia. And, and the problem now is that they are waking up to reality. They don't have a military industrial complex that actually can match what Russia alone can can do, you know. So I'm not even talking about China. China, the, the the capacity of China would be two, three times what Russia has. And again, Russia is spending only three percent of its GDP. You know, if it, if Russia was in full war, it could spend. You know, in World War Three, was probably spending fifty percent of its GDP. Uh, that would be another matter. You know, you know, war economy. And again, you have also. When we are talking about purpose, Russia, it is existential. The West, just think about average Joe in the West, you know, average citizen in the West. Do they want to die? Do, do you imagine those cosmopolitan generation going into trenches and going through what Ukrainians and Russia are going through? There's no way, no way, because they're, they're not, they're not going to buy into this, you know. Uh, so they have a, you know, and there's a mismatch. There's a mismatch. You know, we, I think uh, the Durand mentioned this quite a few times. Uh, uh, UK alone could mobilize only 25,000 troops just to fight. I mean, 25,000 25, troops. 
uh, these days, uh, Ukraine is, is losing 1,000 uh, uh, army personnel every day. So you would have the UK, the, the troops of UK, if they were to join the fight, would be would they just last one month. So this, you know, and, and I think that they, they they need to wake up. Really, you you don't need to be a, a genius just to see that you know this is a war that NATO cannot win. You know, and what is winning really? What mm-hmm. is Yeah, we spoke about that earlier. I mean, it's it's extremely frustrating. Uh, We're going to play a clip here from Patrick Lancaster uh, from one of his uh, latest videos. Uh, He went to the front line on the border of Kharkiv uh, region in Ukraine. Uh, Let's have a look here what Mr. Lancaster is up to. One moment. Well, um, somebody just made a comment uh, here. you can always see the real stress and fear on Patrick's face in these videos. I can relate, though I've never been in a war and have no desire to experience it firsthand. Brian, um, you've covered Patrick's work. Uh, I've met him personally. Uh, I can see uh, that this is taking its toll on him uh, each time I talk to him. Uh, he's a little bit more agitated. Um very understandable for a person that has seen so many horrific things. This is a guy that will go down in history on having documented, single-handedly documented, uh, some pretty serious atrocities. And as I say, if you haven't before, back up his work from his channel, watch his videos, share his videos, make a copy, send a friend a copy, put it in the safety deposit box, because one day... In the near future or distant future, these videos will be played in front of a tribunal for some people to be judged. Brian, maybe you can help the audience understand really what war, what kind of, I guess, you know, to think what this can do to a person's mental health. Maybe you could share that with the audience well i mean just being an analyst and looking at the carnage that you see say on telegram you're watching people blown into pieces uh still alive or dead or um, people burned to death outside of a destroyed armored vehicle Uh, even that uh, is not healthy to do on a daily basis and imagine patrick doing it in person and imagine patrick showing up at a civilian uh, target that Ukraine is, is shelling or launching rockets at. And uh, there's incoming while he arrives because they, they want to hit the, the first responders when they show up. And there's smoking craters in the ground from this incoming fire. Everybody is running away from it. Patrick is running toward it to show the world what Ukraine is doing, to show the world what the Western media refuses, deliberately so, uh, refuses to show the world regarding what Ukraine, their proxies are doing to people in the Donbas region. He's been doing this for years and years. And there in Belgorod, I mean, these are, you could see, it's, this is not a military base. These aren't military positions. They are shelling civilians. Their whole goal is to compel the Russian military to commit a large amount of forces 
there to protect it, to deal with this threat to the civilian population that Ukraine is deliberately targeting. And this is what they've been doing to Donetsk City for like uh, nine, going on 10 years now. This is what they've been doing. And now that they've got their storm shadows, they've been trying to hit Lugansk. And uh, this is what Patrick has been cataloging. It's one thing when you see soldiers, armed fighters fighting, being injured and dying. It's another thing to watch family members killed in, in front of their family and seeing seeing that loss being there when it first happens because he he has to go there. He has to show it because nobody else is showing it. So yeah, it's obviously going to take a tremendous psychological toll. I, I could only imagine how he feels because I don't even want to do an, a, analysis. I don't even want to do what I do. I couldn't imagine Patrick doing what he's doing, but when you feel like not doing it, you just realize no one else is going to do it. You have to do it. You have to step up and do it. Patrick is stepping up and doing it. So I hope people appreciate what he's doing. And I hope that uh, they go check out his channel and support his work because uh, really, who else is doing it? Not not that many people are doing what he's doing. Yeah, uh, Brian, and also... You know, there's other people that are helping throughout this community. Um, Angelo, thank you for your words of wisdom that you share uh, throughout Twitter as well. Uh, you're quite colorful on Twitter. Uh, I've been enjoying watching uh, your your interaction. Um, just so the audience, if you haven't seen before, Brian and I actually had a show uh, a few months back where we did encounter uh, a person that was heavily uh, you know, indoctrinated with propaganda on this, uh, this very topic here. And for most parts, you know, as you've seen lots of, uh, Brian's work before, facts. And that's something that the audience can take from, you know, programs like this. When you're sitting down at that table, you know, or the relatives, or if you're out on the Sunday barbecue and somebody wants to get into this conversation, I mean, that is a good live stream to go back and look at on how we dealt with that situation. We were very cordial and very professional when we were talking with this individual. But it was so clear, so very clear how the individual uh, was, I would say, just hook, line and sinker on the propaganda. And when you go to challenge a person like that, uh, I mean, we knew coming out of the gate that uh, we were prepared. But when you see, uh, you get into these conversations with people about this conflict, people just hide behind, you know, these quick news clips. Um, Brian, maybe you could share just a little bit about, you know, how you felt. Uh, that was one of the only times I've seen you really get rattled through a live stream. I was rattled. Uh, I tried to keep my cool. You know, I when I started the opening question, I asked the guy, have you, have you read the Minsk? Uh, agreement and it was a no I thought here we go here we go I mean Brian you uh, even the audience for weeks were saying I've never seen you know Brian Berletta from the new atlas like this um, tell us about how it feels to become on you know face to face with somebody that is so set in their ways I mean how do we as the public you know tell this other side of the story like the Patrick Lancaster this is one guy one guy. Okay, yes, there's some other people in there that have done amazing work, but this guy's been there for what, going on almost 10 years. 
1,500 people he's seen died. His family's house has been, I mean, bombs have gone off within meters of of his house. I mean, he's there. I mean, life is not, uh, it's not like Patrick Lancaster is there funded by the BBC sitting in a hotel uh, after, you know, a good shower and a nice, uh, you know, uh, full breakfast. This boy is uh, full to the wall. And uh, tell us, Brian, how does, how do we as viewers when we get into these conversations with a lot of people, how do we deal with it? Well, I, I think you were right. I, you got to go and show people sources that they trust. This is why a lot of people are like, Brian, why, why do you use the ADL? Uh, why do you use BBC? Because I'm not trying to convince people that agree with me. They already agree with me. I'm trying to convince people that disagree with me, that can't see what's really happening. And I use Western sources to show them that even the Western media is admitting this. They're being dishonest. They're lying to you in the headline. They're lying to you in the first two or three paragraphs. And they're contradicting themselves with the truth buried somewhere in the article or uh, a one article contradicts another about the same topic. And that only happens, and everyone has personal experience with liars when their story keeps changing. It's because they're lying. It's not because reality is changing. It's because they're lying about reality. Uh, this individual uh, that you're referring to, they actually knew well ahead of time that we were going to debate specifically about this topic. And if you go to Wikipedia, I was just checking. I just wanted to make sure. If you go to Wikipedia, the, Min- the Minsk agreement is like a... Is like a what has its own section. So this person didn't even look at Wikipedia, which is literally the, the least you could do without absolutely doing nothing to prepare. You can at least scan Wikipedia and be like, wait, what's Minsk? I don't know what that is. Maybe I should read one or two sentences about that. Didn't even read that. And the thing that uh, got me angry was because he was talking about how brainwashed Chinese people are for believing that the U.S. proxy war against Russia and Ukraine is connected to China, that China is the next target, which U.S. government officials have said is the the, the reality. And as the Western media has repeatedly said, they, they themselves have linked one to the other. That is why China is concerned about it. Also, it's, it's very obvious what's going on. So this person was saying Chinese people are brainwashed for understanding reality and not just repeating DW, BBC, CNN, like he was doing. Mm. And, I mean, he was he was r- repeatedly appealing to emotions. There were no facts at all. And uh, that's what you have to try to help people understand, that you are being manipulated emotionally. You do not have the facts. And uh, what you have to try to do is not not paint them into a corner. Um, don't Don't be confrontational with them. Just try to share information with them. Ask, ask them questions, even though you already know what the answer is. Ask them questions. Try to lead them through questions to the common sense conclusion that you will draw. Just again, just looking at the Western media, um, looking at Petraeus saying Russian defenses are brittle and they're manned by these poorly trained and led conscripts. And then wrote uh, Wall Street Journal the next week saying Ukrainians are saying they're crashing into a wall of steel. Uh, Russia's defenses are strong. You know, it's depressing that we have to even have this conversation. You would think that literally the same people who lied to us about Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, people in the West would think twice before believing them about Ukraine. And yet they're buying right into it. And you ask them, you know, what about Iraq? Oh, yeah, okay, America was wrong about Iraq. But this is totally different. How is it different? 
How do you know the people who lied to you shamelessly then and never suffered any consequences aren't lying to you this time? Because I have news for you. They are lying to you this time as well. This is not the first time they're telling the truth. Uh, it's an uphill battle, but we have no choice but to fight it because this is this is the world that's at stake. You, you cannot allow people who are doing this, who are waging this proxy war, who are sending thousands and thousands of Ukrainians to their death for their own their own gain. You cannot allow people like this to prevail because uh, it's happening in Ukraine today. It could happen to where you are tomorrow. I'm, I'm in Thailand. It's happening to Thailand now. There's a U.S.-backed client regime poised to take power after the recent general elections. It, it will happen. So we have to we have to fight victory in one place will be victory for us everywhere. And failure in one place sets us up for failure everywhere else. Well said, Brian. Angelo, uh, you know, I met a couple of your friends yesterday. Very, very interesting people. It's amazing how many people you think you might not think are into geopolitics. And then the moment, you know, my wife always says you never instigate the chat, but you wait for it. And it's true. You'll sit at a table for 15 minutes and then it'll go. Angela, tell us about, you know, you're quite active on Twitter and you've taken, you know, quite an interest here on geopolitics. Is it, you know, the surrounding of the people that you you enjoy getting into the stuff? Maybe just share a little bit more about your your interests and how you deal with, uh, you know, what I asked Brian a little bit earlier there. How do we get that message out to, you know, the common people over dinner, maybe some drinks. I mean, we're on live stream now. We got, uh, you know, three and a half thousand people here. But if we were, you know, to go out into public, I mean, how how are you doing that from where you are? I think uh, I share uh, many things with, with Brian, the same, uh, the same attitude. Uh, I think what we need to focus is facts and not ideology. Actually, uh, I think I, I uh, Brian can confirm we... Uh, Brian and, my, and myself, we're not driven by ideology. We actually don't like, you know, being called uh, whatever even, you know, those boxes that we put people inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is wrong, and I think we need to be much more flexible than than putting ourselves into a box. So what we look at is facts. Uh, so as long as people they they are, we have an alignment in discussions, and they are based on facts. I'm actually open to any opinions because, you know, opinions is uh, we all different. We all have different lenses. But if people are not doing their homework and they are they base their opinions on on some things that are actually just emotion and not factual facts, then this is when when I get really frustrated because we do the homework. Uh, people, you know, I have many. How many times I, I have someone coming to me and saying, "Oh, they tell me something which is a fake news." And just because they took they took in something that was two seconds of information, and then I have to do 30 minutes of research, and I come back with all the research and telling them, well, you know, this is A plus B plus C, and this is the result, and you were misled. And you know what? They say like, oh, yes, but, and there's the, the next thing. The problem is that uh, looking for facts is, is, is a full-time job. It's very difficult to do. So sometimes we have people in front of us which are intellectually dishonest. You know, they they they, they don't do the homework, and and nothing is based on facts. Uh, so I, I think it's important just not to not to be stuck into ideology. 
And I want also to, to make, a, you know, to, to make some points about, you know, in general, what we have from the West is uh, their claims of human rights and especially democracy. Uh, you see what we, one thing that I'm fighting against is, uh, is actually uh, interference. Uh, because I believe that the foundation, number one, you know, you can have any, you, you know, you can talk, talk about any ideology, democracy, and so on. But, you know, I mean, the precondition of democracy is sovereignty. And because democracy is a process of self-determination. So in the first place, why do we have the conflicts in Ukraine? It's related to, you know, infringement on Ukraine's democracy. There was a coup. If there was no infringement, you know, everything that was internal to Ukraine could have stayed internal and they would have solved the problems on their own. What we are seeing around the world is actually this meddling by the West into other countries' democracy and sovereignty. And this is why actually they're claiming that they want to, they want all those countries to have a democracy, but you are going against the UN Charter of uh, that says clearly you shouldn't let into other countries' politics, and this goes against what you are advocating, which is democracy. And again, why would you do to other countries what you would never accept to your own countries? Uh, so I think this is this whole hypocrisy. You know, they want to they start talking about human rights, and then you go into details and say, and and they cannot even. Those people that are advocating for human rights and democracy, they cannot give you even a definition. And they don't have themselves a good understanding of what is a democracy. You see, what you want to export a democracy, but do you have a democracy? What you, you don't even know the, the difference between electing and voting, which is fundamental. So, so you see, I, I, what I fight is, is against this ignorance and, and the problem that we are facing people that are driven emotionally and they don't do the homework into looking with fa to facts. Because I'm, I'm fine, you know, as long as people, you know, they come up with facts, then, then we have a rational discussion. But you see, the problem is that in the West, that's not fact-based. Many, many things are emotional. It, it, you know, it, they say from day one, Putin is bad, he's a dictator. You see, once you put a country like China in a box, they are actually oppressing their own people. It's a dictatorship and so on. It's communist. What do you see? It's so much in the subconscious of, of uh, average Joe in the West. Communist equal bad. Everything that is associated to China is going to be bad. And, and, and I, I think those shortcuts are very dangerous. And I think it's very much related to culture. You, we, we, uh, the three of us, we've been living in Asia. In Asia, they don't believe in black and white. They hate, they don't like that because they know there are nuances. You know, it's never black or white. Once you put things into a box, you are my friend or my enemy. Remember what George Bush said. You are either with us or against us. How absurd is that? Have you ever heard about non-alignment? That's what 75% of the world is doing right now. Non-alignment. When you have 75% of the world, which is going against your own narrative, maybe you should start doing self-introspection. What if I am wrong? I have my lenses, 
Well, guess what? 75% of the world has different lenses. Actually, I should say 90%. The US is only 4%. And, and, and I think the problem is that, you know, they, they see, I mean, the, if you look at the trend, and I put a tweet on that, ultimately, the US has never been so isolated. Because they are, they have internal fights with even their partners. They even bombed Nord Stream 2, which was, which was, you know, which belonged to Germany, which is going to kill Germans, Germans economy. They, they don't even trust their own allies. You'll see if one ally was to surpass the US, they would, they would just smash them. The same as they did to, by the way, Japan, you know, 1984, there was a Paris, a uh, uh, plaza accord just to destroy Japanese economy because it was to su- going to surpass the U.S. And that's dangerous. Now we need to stop this madness. And I like to say that we need to get adults back on the table because when I look at the collective West, the, it's kindergarten. Just look at the pro. I mean, those people: Macron, Baerbock, Sunak, Trudeau. I mean, the. I mean the. The comedians, they are comedians, you know, they actually, in terms of marketing, you know, you, you know, well, they look okay, you know, and, and they, you, you can sell them, but, you know, it, but this is showmanship. It's not, you know, they are politicians, but then they're, they're not leaders. There's a huge difference between being statesman and a politician. And I don't see any statements. Tell me one single statement in the West that you, you, you can respect. And that is respected. That is re- the most important. That is respected by his own people. The range is between 25% to 35%. Guess what? Putin is over 80%. Xi Jinping, over 95%. And those are studies by Western uh, uh, in, in institutes. Wow. I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, thanks for laying that out for us. Uh, gentlemen, I want to thank all of you for joining this program. I know we went over a little bit of time, but uh, that's because we haven't chatted for a while. But uh, once again, thanks so much. I uh, just want to keep a, a shout out to a few other channels here. Uh, the Duran, uh, Alex Christoforu, Alex Makuras. Those are two channels that uh, you definitely have to subscribe to. As well as Angelo, you can find him on YouTube as well as Twitter. The new Atlas uh, with Brian Berletic, fantastic. Get your daily dose of it. I do. Uh, it's something I need to get going in the day and in the afternoons. Uh, well, just during the show, we saw Alex Christopher who put out a report. So head over there as well. You can join my channel, Reportify Media, if you haven't already. Uh, I would greatly appreciate that. We will let you go with a little bit of music and a little bit of uh, aerial footage here of China. Uh, gentlemen, uh, if you could just stay backstage with me here for a bit. I look forward to chatting with you guys just for a couple of minutes. Everyone, have yourself a safe week. And uh, we're on holidays here in China as of tomorrow. So keep an eye on the geopolitical, this geopolitical space. We will probably do a show here in the near future. Always blessed to do it with these two gentlemen. It's a great time having you guys on the show. Any last things that you want to say to the audience before we go, guys? Uh, just thanks for having us, and uh, we look forward to coming back on again real soon. All right, Angelo, good? Yes, always <laughs> a great pleasure. Uh, I would say just a small word, just uh, don't forget, you know, there are lots of uh, people that are doing all work, journalists, that are in jail right now. You know, mm. there's uh, Gonzalo Lira, 
never forget You're right. because they are out there and people are so that are taking risk, you know, they're risking their life like Patrick Lancaster. Yes. Thank you for mentioning uh, Gonzalo. I mean, wow. I mean, that is a situation that should have been sorted a long time ago. Um, well, everyone, uh, have yourself a great evening and a great afternoon wherever you are. Take care, and I'll talk to you gentlemen backstage. Thanks.